over the past six months or so, there has been a lot of focus in not only the national discussion, but really in worldwide discussion about who we honor and how we honor them. Whether it's been a discussion of whose statues should adorn the village square, or whose names should be on buildings. There has been a new kind of scrutiny that has been imposed upon many who have been honored for something that happened during one portion of their lives. And without getting into the positives or negatives about any of that kind of thing, I did want to point to the fact that the equivalent of these kinds of honors can be found in the scriptures in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Many people call the 11th chapter of Hebrews the, the roll call of faith uh, because it is a listing of people who the writer of the Hebrews talks about uh, exhibiting great faith or accomplishing great things as a result of their faith. Uh, as I look at the list, I wonder how many of those who are listed as heroes and heroines of faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews would stand up to the kind of scrutiny that some public figures are forced to endure today. There are 16 or 17, depending on how you count, Names that are listed in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. The first one listed is Abel. And then by comparison, Cain is listed. But he's really not one of the ones that's listed as an exemplar of faith. Then there is Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. Sixteen names. And of those sixteen names, there are only three that the Bible does not lift up a significant flaw in their character. One of them is Abel. The writer of the Hebrews simply says that by faith Abel offered to God more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Another is Enoch. And we're told that Enoch walked so closely with God that God just kind of simply took him into his presence 
and he did not experience physical death. And then there was Samuel. Whereas some of Samuel's sons had some problems obeying God, uh, Samuel himself comes off as a man of, of great integrity and accomplishment in the scriptures. But the rest of them, in many ways, almost look like a rogue's gallery. Noah responded to God's salvation by planting a vineyard, getting drunk, and then exposing himself to his family. Abraham lied about his wife's identity not once but twice, and that served the purpose of literally offering his wife up as a wife to another man. Isaac, following in his father's footsteps, lied about his wife's identity once. Jacob cheated his brother and deceived his father. Esau, the scripture says he despised his birthright. Due to his short-sightedness, he gave away his opportunity to inherit a family fortune. Joseph was the original privileged person. The scriptures tell us that Joseph was favored of all of the sons of Jacob. And as a young man, he was willing to press that privilege to the detriment of his brothers. So much so that they hated him as he bragged about his privileged position. And even though he suffered some hard times and behaved and responded remarkably in the midst of those struggles in Egypt, even though all of that is true, when it came time for the end of Jacob's life, Joseph still lived according to his privilege. When Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, shamed himself and his father by going in and having sexual relations with one of his father's concubines, Jacob disinherited him. Judah was the second oldest son and should have received the birthright. But because Joseph was Jacob's favorite, he gave the birthright to Joseph. And Joseph received a double portion of Jacob's inheritance, which he then divided between his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So if we talk about living a life of some kind of systemic privilege, that would be Joseph. Moses was a murderer. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a coward. God found him hiding 
in a wine press. Barak, although he was identified in the scriptures as a very capable military leader, when God called him to lead the armies of Israel into battle, he refused unless Deborah, a woman, would go with him. Samson, we always think about Samson's great strength and he uh, is not cutting his hair, but Samson was an adulterer and he was one who broke his vows to God. Not only did he allow Delilah to cut his hair, but he also forsook his promise not to partake of strong drink and in many instances made his decisions in a drunken stupor. Jephthah, another one of Israel's judges, made a foolish vow, vow to God and wound up having to sacrifice his daughter. He put his only daughter to death because of the promise he made to God. And then David, an adulterer, a murderer, and certainly one of the worst fathers by example described anywhere in Scripture. If I were putting together a list of people that were to be honored, a roll call of faith, whereas these people accomplished some amazing things, somewhere along the line, I would try to put some spin in contemporary terms on some of their failures. But instead of putting a positive spin on the lives of those whom God has achieved His purpose, the Bible tells their story as it is, with its triumphs, with their triumphs and failures. And God's Word invites us to learn from their examples that God can take broken vessels, even broken people, and achieve great things through them. And then there's the story of Cyrus. Cyrus, not even a Jew. If the people listed in Hebrews 11 had flaws, there were glaring, uh, glaring gaps in Cyrus's resume as someone who God would use. He was a Gentile. He was the king of an enemy of Israel. During the time when he ruled, he was not only a foreigner, but he was a king over the country that had Israel in exile. He didn't worship God. He didn't even know who God was. In every way, Cyrus represented the kinds of kings that the Jews would pray for the Messiah to destroy. 
And yet here is what God says through Isaiah about Cyrus. The Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to disarm kings, to open doors before him, and even city gates will not be shut. That's the way God describes Cyrus before he gives Cyrus this promise. I will go before you and level the uneven places. I will shatter the bronze doors and cut the iron bars in two. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches from secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord. I am the God of Israel who calls you by your name. I call you by my name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen one. I give a name to you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me. So that all may know, from the rising of the sun to its setting, that there is no one but me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. This is an amazing portion of Scripture from God's Word. When we consider that in the eyes of any Jew, Cyrus would have been a hated individual, an enemy, God says, I have chosen you, I have called you by name, I am going to equip you to do great things, not only for me, but for the sake of my people. Now, I don't know about you, but if God can choose Cyrus, that tells some important things to me about my own personal relationship with God. If God can choose any, he can choose anyone, even me, even you. What are some things that we can learn from the very fact that God would choose someone like Cyrus, or like any of those people listed in Hebrews 11, 13 of the 16 anyway, listed by name. What are some things that we can learn about God's choosing less than perfect vessels? I think one of the first things is that if God can choose Cyrus, he can choose me. God's not limited by who we are in choosing us to be his servants. All it takes is God's will, God's plan, God's purpose. If God can choose someone like Cyrus, who literally is moving in an opposite direction from anything that God would desire as far as a people is concerned, 
if God can choose someone like Cyrus, then I don't have to have a perfect resume in order for God to choose me. You don't have to have a perfect resume for God to choose you. All it takes is for God to know us and for God to have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And we're told in the scriptures that God has a plan. God has a purpose for every single one of us. And that goes back to the moment when we were born. When God was speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, he says, even when you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. God has chosen us for a specific purpose, a specific plan. Now, oftentimes we don't achieve that purpose. And we don't acknowledge God's choice of us. But it doesn't mean that God has not chosen us. We need never think that we are too insignificant to be chosen by God or incapable or in anything else. The very fact that God created us ought to teach us that God has chosen us. And that makes every single one of us important and special in God's eyes. Now, God not only tells Cyrus, I have chosen you, but he also says, I have equipped you. I've given you everything you need in order to accomplish the purpose that I have for you. And that teaches us that if God can equip Cyrus, he can equip us. He can equip me. He can equip you. If God will take a pagan king who doesn't even know who he is and say, Cyrus, I'm going to give you everything you need to succeed in the purpose for which I have called you, then we need not worry about whether God has equipped us to accomplish his purpose. He has, and he will continue to do so. I have many times approached people about attempting something for the sake of the kingdom of God. And they just, you know, people will look at me and say, I just can't do that. I get too nervous. I get too tongue-tied. I get to this. I get to that. There's no way I can do that at a level that I would want to offer to God. The simple fact of the matter is if God has called us to do something, he's equipped us to do something. Many times there are groups of people, churches, families, who God has called to accomplish great things for the sake of his kingdom, but they say we don't have the resources. But if we step out on faith, and we know that what we're doing is not our will, but God's will. God provides the resources. He always equips those 
whom he calls, even a pagan king. God says, it's going to take power for you to accomplish what I want you to accomplish for my people. So Cyrus, I'm going to give you power. You're going to have to rise above all the other kings in the area, Cyrus. So guess what? I'm going to give you the strength to conquer every king around you so that you can accomplish my purpose for the sake of my people. He promised to equip Cyrus for the task, and he promises us the same thing. And then God says, Cyrus, I've chosen you. I will equip you so that I can use you to accomplish the purpose for which I created you. And if God can use Cyrus, that teaches us that God can use us. He can use me. He can use you. We should never think that we are beyond usefulness for the sake of the kingdom of God. I'm getting to the point where the birthday candles are dangerous fire hazards. And as there will be a day not too long from now when I may start thinking about retirement from one phase of the life in which God has called me. But that does not mean that I retire from usefulness for the sake of God's kingdom. I was reading an article this past week about Billy Graham and about how he remained faithful to his calling, the calling that had been given him by God. And how even as he got older and he had to adjust the things that he did, he always sought to find ways to share the gospel with others. And at the age of 95, those of us who think we're too old to do this or that, at the age of 95, he was involved in producing a program that went around the world talking about God's plan and God's purpose for our lives and how we can have peace with God. We never, ever, regardless of age, regardless of our physical capabilities, we never get beyond the point where we can be useful for God. I am so grateful that I learned that lesson early in my life. And I earned it in an unlikely way. There was a, a fellow that my father knew who was seriously disabled physically. There wasn't really much that anybody thought he could do but he wanted to encourage people. And so what he did with his limited physical abilities was to take construction paper 
folded in half, and he run a string through the spine of this makeshift book that he had made. And people would bring him comic strips from the paper, cartoons from magazines, or whatever. And he had a way of cutting those out, and he would, play, he would paste them into these books so that they could be taken to hospitals, to, to waiting rooms, to uh, rehab facilities, even to some of our homebound members of our church. And they could leaf through these books and look at comics and cartoons and have their moods lightened in difficult times. Anyone looking at that man would have thought there was nothing he could do physically. But he saw the way that God could use him. And God used him in a mighty way. And I remember as a child, looking at those books, and saying, if God can use him, God can use me. And that's what this calling to Cyrus says. If God can use him, he can use me. So we're never too far away from God. We're never too sinful. We're never too ill-equipped that God can't use us if we'll hear his voice, if we will respond to him in faith and allow him to transform us into who he has promised for us to be. He can accomplish miracles even through us. Cyrus, the great king of Persia. If God can choose him, he can choose us. And he has chosen us. And he will equip us. And he will use us if we're willing. We pray with him. Lord God, it is a miracle that still strikes all in our thoughts when we ponder the fact that we can use vessels as broken and as currently ill-equipped as us to do great things for your kingdom. But that's what you've promised us in your word, what I ask today is that you will help us to just see for a moment what you see when you look at us, the purpose that you see, the victory that you see, the capabilities that you see, and help us to be willing to be chosen by you, to be equipped by you, to be used by you. For the sake of your kingdom, in Jesus' name.